Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. This morning we are starting a new series on the book of Philippians. So I'm going to read. It's quite long, so stay with it because it's brilliant. Um, It's a few verses mashed together, but Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and the praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And so convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Amazing. Can we welcome Ange as she comes to speak? Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you all for your encouragement toward me this morning. Those chairs were from um, our Connect group. I bribed them all earlier this week. Thanks, guys. (laughs) I just can't wait to journey with all of you this morning through the most wonderful book on earth. Did you know that it has the answer for every human problem? for every moment of our lives, for every step of uncertainty, for every relational pain, for every anxious 
thought. For every life decision or transition, it is a treasure chest filled with the unsearchable riches of heaven. And in this book, there is a treasure chest with your name on it, with treasures filled especially by your heavenly Father just for you each and every day. Is that not cool or what? We can take it for granted so easily, but it is the most beautiful book on earth. And today we are going to be looking at the book of Philippians as Joe has helped introduce us to it this morning. It's our new series. And um, if we look at life in 21st century London today, it is full of pressures. How can I fit in? What do people think about me? Am I good enough? Successful enough? Why is life so hard sometimes? It feels relentless. Will I ever make it? Will I ever be happy? And these pressures are not unique to our time or even to our city. The book of Philippians explores this theme of how we can experience contentment and, yes, even joy, which is what we were singing about earlier, in the hardest times of our life. And our hope as we look at this book of Philippians is that we too will begin to learn how we might be able to experience joy in our lives, even though we might be facing the most difficult challenges. And you know, Christchurch, this has been real for me in maybe a little bit, a really significant way over the last month. My um, kids have all been on school holidays. They've been totally excited to be relaxing and having fun and going on these super adventures in the city of London every day. And I've had at the back of my mind that I've got to be preparing this talk for all of you. And sometimes the thought even crossed my mind, oh, what a drag. <laughs> you know, it was that feeling. It's okay to laugh at that, if you like. Um, I had that feeling, some of you might have had this before, when, you, um, when I was back at university and I had one more exam to write and everybody else was finished and I was celebrating and there was I sitting at my desk having to study. Um, anybody else ever been there? Yeah. And, um, but you know, as I began to look again at this beautiful book of Philippians and read about how we can experience joy no matter what we are going through, it's like I began to realize what a joy it was amidst the craziness of being this fun holiday coordinator for my kids. You know, Mary Poppins on steroids every day. Um, I had this opportunity to gaze long and deep at the beauty of God's words, and gosh, was I wrong. It was God's goodness to me to nudge me that little bit more closer to Him. And I wonder, I just wonder what God might have in store for each of you today from his beautiful words. So we're looking at um, the book of Philippians. And the letter of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. And we're going to look a little bit at some background here first. And um, he was probably under house arrest, though we're not quite 
sure precisely where he was. The main point was he was in jail when he wrote this. Okay, he was not writing from a holiday resort in Malta like some of our friends right now. No, he was in a pretty rough spot. And the backdrop was the town of Philippi, which is today located in modern-day Greece. But back then, it was a really prosperous Roman colony. And it was actually the leading district of its town. Um, uh, sorry, the leading town of its district. And um, it had kind of the highest status that a community could have back then, as well as having all the rights of the citizens of Rome. So basically, it was a pretty status place to live. It was also on a major trading route. Some of you might have heard of the Ignatian Way from east to west um, during Roman times, which meant that it was a strategic trading town, even although it was a little bit inland. So in other words... The city or the town of Philippi was a prosperous and it was a famous town. It was an economic hub. It was a fantastic place to shop. And the people who lived there were pretty obsessed with status. Sounds a bit like a city we know and love well, doesn't it? And by the time the letter of Philippians is written, it seems that the church in Philippi is a pretty vibrant community. And um, we see that they seem to have the same heart as Paul for the mission of preaching the gospel. And they seem to also be faithful partners with Paul in getting the gospel out. They support him financially. And um, in his own words, this church is a real joy to him. And the book of Acts in the Bible, chapter 16, tells us a bit of the backstory about how the church of Acts began and some of the diversity, actually, that we found in this church at Philippi. I'm going to take us a little bit through some of those stories first. The first person to respond to the gospel was a woman. Isn't that cool? And her name was Lydia. Now, what we know about her, she wasn't a native of Philippi. She was from a like neighboring region, um, and um, it's kind of sort of, south of Istanbul today, the region she was from. Um, so basically, she was ethnically different to everybody else um, in Philippi. And um, she also was a dealer in purple cloth fabrics for clothing, and she had her own house in Philippi. So she, we know that she was a wealthy businesswoman in the fashion industry. Um, but despite her pagan roots from where she had come from, the town, um, she was also a seeker of God. She had this open heart toward God. The next addition to the church in Philippi was a slave girl. The Bible tells us that she had the spirit by which she could predict people's futures. And her owners used to make money off her by getting her to tell people's futures. She was poor and likely really badly exploited. So different to Lydia. And yet, Paul comes, he casts the spirit out of her, and she finds peace in Jesus. Isn't that cool? And of course, her owners are pretty incensed. They stir up trouble for Paul and Silas and Philippi, who land up being stripped naked, beaten, and thrown into prison. Okay? And they've been given, the, 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 the warden's been given strict instructions to keep them under safeguard. So the jailer decides he's not taking any chances. He sticks them in the inner cell, puts their feet into the stocks. Now, if you were Paul and Silas at this moment, what would you be doing? Would you be sulking, feeling a bit sorry for yourself about your bad state? Would you be rehashing the events of the day, wondering, oh, what did I do wrong? What could I do better? Would you be blaming God? Because actually, you were out there for him anyway, weren't you? So why did you have to be suffering all this trouble? 
But these two are incredible. We find them, what are they doing at midnight? They are praying, right? And they are singing hymns aloud to God for all the other prisoners to hear. And what happens is at midnight, an earthquake hits. The jail doors fling open and get this, every single prisoner's shackles are broken off. The jailer wakes up with a start and he thinks, everybody's gone, they've all escaped. And he knew that this would mean punishment by death for him. So averting that, he decides, I'm going to just take my own life. And he raises his, hand, his sword to kill himself, at which moment Paul shouts out from the darkened cell. And he says, stop, don't hurt yourself. We are all here. And you know what? This jailer, amazed at the kindness he's receiving from a man that he is imprisoning, he runs into the cell. He falls at their feet trembling, and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And of course, Paul and Silas share the beautiful good news of Jesus. And that very hour, the jailer and his family come to faith in God. He is so filled with joy, this guy, that with the very hands with which he had probably beaten and tortured and maltreated these men, he takes a cloth and some fluid, and he begins to wash their wounds. Such is the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus. And you and I, we've got this. We know this. We need to share it, right? So into the next addition to the Philippian church, the jailer and his family. Now it's into this context that the first chapter of the book of Philippians um, starts. And we see it opens with this expression of love and thanksgiving for the church that, that, that Paul um, is expressing. It then goes on a few verses later to look at some of the difficulty of Paul's hard hour in prison. And then after that, it finishes um, with a beautiful reminder of what life is really all about. And I give you all this background about the church in Philippi because it's into this messy bunch of people. You've got rich, you've got poor, you've got educated, uneducated, people from wacky spiritual backgrounds to, you know, real God seekers. You've got laborers to business people and a mix of different cultures. And it's into this bunch of people that God births his church at Philippi. He puts them in his house and he says, you are my Philippian family. And my first point for us today is you belong in God's community of love. God specializes in taking disparate groups of people from all walks and shades of life. And he places them together in a community. Don't you just love the church of Jesus? There is place enough for any and all of us, no matter how shameful your background, no matter how clever or articulate you are, no matter the current condition of your spiritual prowess. God saw you, he knew you, and his love relentlessly pursued you because he had a place in his community with your name on it. Each and every single one of us have a right to belong in God's community because of what Jesus has done. Jesus doesn't accept how rubbish we feel about ourselves. And I know 
because it happens to me and I see it all the time in my work. He doesn't accept how invalid you think you are sometimes. You know, that negative self-talk that goes round in your mind and gets you down thinking like you're just not enough or maybe a bit too much. No, he went ahead anyway and he saved a seat with your name on it. Perhaps you walked into church this morning thinking, if people really knew what I was like, I'm such a fraud. I can't worship. I can't let God see me. No, we each have the right to belong because of what Jesus did. And the amazing thing is, is that Jesus embraced the very rejection that we sometimes feel. And he fought for our freedom from it. He wrestled every single power in the pit of hell for us. He loves us, Christ Church. Do you get it? Without exception, irrespective of our merit, just like he did Lydia, just like he did the slave girl, and just like he did the jailer. Isaiah 61 couldn't make it clearer, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit here for us. Jesus came to proclaim his good news over us, that none of us need to be outsiders, that in Jesus there is forgiveness and acceptance for all of us. We were singing about that this morning, weren't we? Jesus paid it all. He did it all. To fix the broken pieces of our hearts, to show freedom to those of us stuck perhaps in fear, to release us from the things that we feel prisoners of, to proclaim his beautiful always and forever kindness, to bring comfort to the depth of our souls by showing his love is enough, to restore our identities as beautiful and free because we are loved. The world gets this one the wrong way around. It says, I love you because you're beautiful. But what does Jesus say? You are beautiful because of my love for you. And if we will know these truths, it can bring such joy to our souls. This is not an ephemeral promise of scripture. It's what's on the table for you and I right now. It's the interface of where I spend my life, spend my life as a psychologist in the unguarded places of people's hearts and pain. And I see Jesus there wiping away people's tears. If you need to, I want to encourage you to speak to someone. We have a steps course and a pastoral team. And these are really amazing ways of helping us just journey to know these truths a bit more. And we see in the church of Philippi, they had come to know this transformative love of Jesus. And when Paul thinks of them in the opening chapters of this book, he is moved with a real sense of love for them because of who they are and what they've become. It's almost like Paul's expressing the Father's heart of love for um, his church through Paul. Let's have a look at some of the verses in the beginning. Verse 3 says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It's right for me to feel this way about you. That's verse 7. Since I have you in my heart. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. It kind of has a bit of the elements of a love letter in there, don't you think? It's a bit like God, a love letter from God to his church through Paul. 
um, longing for them to know the depth of his affection towards his people. And I feel like this is a letter and a message at just the right time for us as Christchurch and particularly here as our central service. I feel like God is saying, a bit like he did to the church at Philippi, to us today, Christchurch, let me just tell you, you are not just anybody. You are loved with all of my affection. Your partnership with me in central London fills me with joy. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for keeping on in this, for not giving up, carrying my message here, even although I know there have been hardships. For it is I who is at work in you. Let your confidence be in me, not in the work you are doing. For it is I who started my work in you. And you can bet and you can feel safe and trust and know I will bring my work in you to a flourishing finish. We belong in God's London family because God first loved us. And we are all part, as David was talking earlier, about building this service together. God didn't put Lydia here. He put you here. Just a little reminder, because he's called you and I to be that community together here. Paul encourages us in um, the next couple of verses, um, in verse 9, and he says, that our knowing of this love of God, it can actually grow. You see, true love keeps on growing and deepening and maturing. And Barry and I, we, have, we will now have been married for 10 years um, at the end of this year. can't believe it. Feels like a hundred, but um, <laughs> sorry, babe. but um, when we first got married, it seemed so big and amazing. Uh, but if I look back from then till now, kind of ten years in, it's like our love is so much more settled. It's full of confidence and confidence because I know Barry and I know his character, and this is an encouragement similarly from Paul, and he says. Our love and our knowing of God's love is not based on our emotional status. It's not based on sentiment and gushiness. No, it is based on knowing God's character. And you know what? That can deepen with insight and it ought to and can and should grow. And we can grow in knowing um, God's love for us and, and in our love for him. Now, in the next kind of chunk of verses, we see that Paul talks about rejoicing. He says, I continue to rejoice and I rejoice and it's all in the present tense, which I think is pretty amazing if you consider his personal conditions, okay? He's in prison, he's awaiting trial, and he doesn't know what the outcome of that trial will be. It could still mean execution. I mean, is that crazy? What do you do when you're having a bad day? Not so easy to connect into that joy. So how does Paul do that? Well, he gives us a clue here in verse 12. And he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of our brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He's saying, on the one hand, yes, I'm in prison. But on the other hand, it's opened up a whole new audience to preach the gospel to. We've got the palace, the administration. They're practically sitting ducks. They've got to be with me all day long. It's like for him, rejoice. And what's even better, the guys outside, 
they've seen God's cool undercover plan to get the gospel into the palace. So they're feeling confident to preach the gospel in their contexts too. He doesn't take our uh, British approach here. How are you doing, Paul? Oh, not too bad, actually. Had a few setbacks, but despite that, the gospel is still advancing. No, his approach is a little bit more like, I am over the moon. It's awesome because my hardships, they are the very way in which the gospel is getting into new places. You see, this is my second point. Paul is able to see with God's perspective, not just his own experience. There are always two perspectives, at least in any situation that we go through. There's our own human experience, the view from that. And then there is the view from God's vantage point. Now, in our own human experience, the view can always can sometimes feel a bit unsure and difficult, confusing. We were singing a little bit about some of that earlier. But Paul's joy and his hope comes because he is able to see God's vantage point on his circumstances. He would have known the stories in the Old Testament, like the one about Joseph in Genesis. Joseph, whose very own brothers sold him into slavery. And he would have known the verse where um, Joseph said to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He knew that the very thing that some might mean for bad, God could turn for good. And Paul actually expresses the exact same thought in an earlier letter to the church in Rome. In Rome. Many of us will know this scripture. We know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Isaiah 40 describes the same two perspectives in this way. It says, no matter what your age on earth, life experiences can make us weary. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and will not faint, be faint. You see, it uses the analogy of an eagle here, which has some amazing attributes. The eagle is the highest flying of all animals on earth. It can reach the heights of airplanes, apparently. And it has this big picture, high up view of the earth below. All right, And it can also see with clarity far into the distance and from where it's come. But it has a sharpness of focus and strength of eyes to be able to see the very detail on the ground below. It can spot a rabbit 3.2 kilometers away. It has like 4.8, 4 to 8 times stronger vision than us as humans. What this verse is telling you and me is that if we will wait upon the Lord to get his perspective in our lives, no matter what we are going through, we can become like an eagle mounting up with big perspective that gives us understanding into what lies ahead. It gives us um, perspective from where we've come, but also clarity into the very details in which we find ourselves. And this gives us strength to run. It gives us confidence to keep on walking, knowing that God who has been with us from the beginning will carry on that work to completion. 
Viktor Frankl, who was a, a psychologist as well as a Holocaust survivor, says that in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment um, that it finds meaning. See, here Paul found the meaning in his hardship, didn't he? He was able to reach up to heaven and get God's perspective in his darkest hour. He's illustrating for us that even when it feels like things are bad, even when it feels like the enemy is won and we are defeated by our own situation, even in those moments of life, do not be afraid. God has not abandoned us and he is not rendered powerless by the things that come against us and intimidate us in this life. What distress or difficulty are you facing today? Colossians 1 verse 17 says that God holds all things together. We read too um, from Romans that he works all things together for our good. So basically, God is perfectly in control. But in that control, he is working in perfect goodness toward us. Even although our view from earth might be trying to tell us otherwise. Paul is demonstrating an ancient practice for us here, a well-worn pathway of God's people to turn to God for refuge. Psalm says this, when I tried to understand all of this, it deeply troubled me until I entered God's sanctuary, then I understood. God's sanctuary was his presence. It's God's presence that brings understanding and clarity to us. Some of you might have heard of Corrie ten Boom. She was part of the Dutch resistance, um, and she helped many people or Jewish people escape the Holocaust during the Nazi invasion in Holland. And, and they did this by hiding people in their home. Actually, in her bedroom, there was this like, little closet. Some of you might have even seen it if you've been to um, Holland. And it was called the hiding place. And um, on one day, the police came in and actually arrested Corrie and her family. And her and her sister Betsy were sent off to a concentration camp. Um, whilst the people, amazingly, who were hiding, escaped away to freedom. And they were there for some time. And her sister, just a few weeks before they were released from the, con well, well, actually, Corrie was released from the concentration camp. Her sister Betsy died from the harsh treatment there. And she writes her story in a book called The Hiding Place. And this is what she says. Every experience God gives us, every person he puts in our lives is the perfect preparation for the future that only he can see. She too had learned to see God's perspective in her circumstances. How do you handle disappointment? Where do you run when difficulty hits? God reminds us, run to me. Pour out your heart before me. Because it's this deep feeling of the soul that he gets it. And you know, he loves us right in that place of pain. And you know, somehow he even manages to take the sting out of it. Even if it takes a bit of time. By turning it in for something good. Joy is based on God's promises, not our experiences Jesus doesn't promise that we won't go through hardship in this life. In fact, on the contrary, it's part of the course for um, our being Christians living in a broken world that can at times be at odds with God's kingdom. But he does promise that he will always be with us. 
And at the end of this book, we see a beautiful encouragement from God when he says, nothing will be able to separate you from my love. Perhaps you are facing huge financial pressure. It could be the death or even the illness of a loved one. Maybe a relationship in your life is falling apart or has fallen apart. Maybe you're being ridiculed for a stand for sexual purity or for integrous decision-making. Or maybe it's just mourning the loss of a dream or a hope that's not yet fulfilled. Jesus comes and he promises us to be with us. He says, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Connect your joy to his promises. Run to him for refuge because his perspective can bring contentment and joy no matter what. My last point is live simply to love Jesus. Verse 21 says, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. Now, he's not sure about the outcome of his trial, Paul, but he gets to this conclusion. You know what? It's pretty clear to me. Living means loving and knowing Jesus more deeply, whatever that requires. And death, what a bonus. I'll see Jesus face to face. We get ourselves so confused down here on earth about what our purpose is all about. Um, what, you know, we, we ask the question sometimes, is life about finding significance? What am I achieving? What's my thing? What's the legacy I'm leaving behind? Particularly in a time of social media that benchmarks us so publicly and painfully and mirrors us constantly against our peers. I see people all the time and we left feeling as if we need to be something more. We should be something better. And that's because we live in a society that's not different from Philippi, that is obsessed with status, money, wealth, power, the rich, the famous. Interestingly, who's seen Google's top 10 list of things most searched in 2018 globally? Of the top 10 things, how many of you guys think involved rich and famous people. Any guesses? Shout them out. Bowl me over. <laughs> anyway, eight, close. Nine out of 10. The last one was the Football World Cup. It just made it in there. Of all the incredible things happening in our whole world in 2018, the thing most occupying society's mind, at least those on Google, was, what's happening with rich and famous people? Status and significance, power, money, wealth are all intertwined in the value systems and the motivations of our culture today. But Paul is nudging us back to a different way. He says, our deep sense of meaning and significance comes not from our status or achievement, but from connection. Connection to Jesus our relationship with Jesus. Remember the story of Mary and Martha, that um, here you had Mary, who, I mean, Martha, who was busy working hard and she complains to Jesus because she's doing all the work and Mary's just sitting and being with Jesus. And the story describes for us that being, you know, with Jesus and doing work for him is really both good. But what Jesus says is, Mary's chosen the better way. 
Come be with me first. You see, the being with Jesus is the source for all our doing. Do some of us today need to come and sit with Jesus first again? The most obvious clue is in our species names. We are human beings, not human doings. And I know we laugh, but it's so counter to the pervasive things that drive us in society today. Um, rest is not what happens when we are finished a massive list of amazing accomplishments or our bucket list. No, it is something that is available for you and I at every step along the way for every part of our journeys because rest is a relational space. It is where our soul is seen and known and heard and comforted, particularly by Jesus. God's very nature is relational, isn't it? We see it in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit dwelling in this beautiful relationship of love and unity. And you know what's super incredible? is that the God of the universe invites us, like us, mankind, to come and participate and dwell in this beautiful relationship of love with the divine. It doesn't get better than that. <clears throat> and you know what's fascinating to me is that I see that psychology is actually catching up with scripture around this. In the last decade, some of the mo most prolific research in the field of neuroscience and attachment science and various forms of psychology has come to sort of a cumulative message, which essentially is this, that we are social, relational, we, we are a social, relational, and bonding species. In other words, we are hardwired for a deep longing for soul connection, for emotional connection, where reassurance and comfort can be reliably obtained. But we know, Scripture's been telling us this for thousands of years, hasn't it? That our deep connection with God is a safe haven for our souls. Isaiah 36 says, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Live tethered to Jesus. Are you in his network? Are you connecting to him? Are you tethering to him regularly? Because our life, let our life mission be about staying in love with Jesus growing in love with Jesus. It is what our souls were made for. And it's from there that the beautiful mission of Jesus will flow, except it'll be with his strength, not our own. I love what Pete Gregg says in Dirty Glory. And, and you'll know, some of you may know that he, he's preached here and he leads a movement called 24-7 Prayer. He writes on prayer, but he says this, I pray because I'm into Jesus, not because I'm into prayer. We so easily make a thing out of a thing. I've done it. Idols out of things, even spiritual things. The devil's number one aim is to take our attention off Jesus. And he'll use anything to do it, won't he? Pray because you're into Jesus. Live to love Jesus. I'll end now with just sharing with, with you um, a little bit of my own journey in this. I was leading in the church from the age of 18. And in my love for Jesus, I was busy doing church um, and all the lovely spiritual things um, that that requires. And it was the very things that made me tick. Some of you might be wondering why. 
it probably seems so unglamorous, but if there was the prototype person passionate for building the church of Jesus, it was moi. It probably was also moi who thought so, only me, but God didn't pick me. He lovingly led me away from it, 10,000 miles away to the beautiful city of London. And he led me into a season of motherhood where I got to change nappies and wipe away tears in what seemed like relative obscurity compared to what the rest of the world was doing. And you know, he did it to show me that he saw me even when it felt like nobody else did. To remind me over and over again that he knew me, even although at times it felt like not many people really did. He led me back into doing therapy with many broken people to show me again what it is that really makes us human. There is a deep longing of the soul in mankind to be connected. Ultimately, first with our Creator and secondly with others. To know and be known, to love and to be loved. Friends, my identity is not in what I do. No matter how spiritual, no matter how average, no matter how statusy that doing might be. Paul reminds us, live to love Jesus. Are you tethered to Him? What are you living your life for here on earth? Don't do it for Jesus. Just love Jesus and let him do it through you. Who or what are you tethered to? Are you connected to your Jesus in that beautiful, loving relationship we get to have with the divine? I wonder if the band wouldn't mind coming up. Perhaps you're a bit like Lydia, seeking, asking questions of faith. This chapter reminds us that we were created uh, for relationship, and it reminds us of God's invitation to have that relationship with Him. Jesus came to earth to restore that relationship with God, to take away all the things that stand in the way. As we sung, Jesus paid it all. If that's you, I want to encourage you, talk to some friends that you might have here today, or come chat to me. I'd love to talk some more about it. I wonder now if here, we can all just perhaps just take a moment. We're going to sing a song, I think, as we close now. But Christchurch, why don't we take a moment to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to turn our gaze and open our hearts to the one with whom our persons were made to connect. And as David was speaking early in the worship, why don't we surrender our hearts afresh? Lord, be Lord, be mine, be what I live and love for, no matter what the situation is I'm going through.